on this episode of Resi Week, Azion hosts a system designer training conference, three tactics to fight the coming economic downturn, and smart home predictions that Hollywood got right. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Rosie Week, episode 162, Design First. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Access Networks and by Chief, the global leader in commercial AV mounting solutions. Welcome to Resi Week. This is your weekly wrap-up of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Josh Willits. He is the president of AV at Portal.io. How you doing, my friend? Good. Thanks for having me again, Matt. Thank you so much for coming back. Then we have Jeremy Glowacki. He is the executive editor of Residential Tech Today, one of the first AV-specific industry magazines to actually make it onto a newsstand. So congratulations on that and, and, and welcome. Thanks. I appreciate that plug. It's great to be here. Thanks. I'm here for all the plugs, <laughs> except for the next one. We welcome back our good friend, Dave Pedigo. He is the director of Global Training at THX. How you doing, my friend? I am super. Thanks for asking. Well, thank you for, for telling. That would have been awkward if you if you didn't. All right, gentlemen, let's uh, kick this right off with a story that comes to us from Residential Systems. Azion is holding its first system design conference, the March conference, which is going to start uh, in two days from the day we are recording this and the day that this uh, podcast will launch. They are uh, holding this inaugural system design conference with a variety of topics and really digging into some of the things that shall we say the the system designer uh, job title doesn't often get focused on. So Josh, I want to start with you on this one. System designers are really the core of what AV integrators do. These are the, the people that obviously design the systems that let everything else work and put everybody else to work. Why is this a I don't want to say a vertical, but but why is this a division, a job segment that so rarely gets focused on from a training standpoint? We always talk about training uh, people in networking, in installation, in sales. Nobody talks about training system designers. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think I actually came from system design, um, believe it or not. I worked for a commercial MEP firm for a while, um, and then I did systems design, worked for an integrator as a uh, – I wore a lot of hats. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to. I think when you look at sort of the e-myth, right, that old school – um, that old book and, and mentality where you got guys who are technical that end up in this industry. Um, a lot of them sort of come in doing their own system design. A lot of these companies start with one, two, three people and grow from there. And so they get used to doing their own designs. And um, <clears throat> it's, you, you have to grow to the point where the business can sustain a full-time designer. So I think it's a certain class of business that has people like this on staff that are dedicated to design and supporting the sales team. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's my take on it. Very good. Jeremy, Matt, can I, sorry, I'm going to jump in just for a second. I'm not going to 
try to correct you too much, but I'm going to, um, the one thing I would say, and don't get me wrong, I'm a huge, huge fan of Richard Glikes. But when you say that we don't really do a lot of training on the designer side, I would defend Cedia for just a second that, um, that, you know, about a fifth of their whole training program is on uh, design uh, and design principles. So while I don't think a lot of people focus on taking design classes, there has been a lot of design classes available. Very good. Jeremy, when you look at this, this is something that, you know, a lot of the manufacturers are doing, a lot of the uh, distributors are doing, a lot of even the, the industry associations that Dave alluded to and the, the buying groups, they're all offering this as a service. Has that been what has caused this a lot of times, uh, not, not to ignore Dave's point, but to ignore it for a second? Um, is this one of those things, that, one of the reasons why it gets overlooked is because, you know, Avid, I can send them in job specs and they'll send me back a system design. I can do that with half of the manufacturers. I can do that with, you know, distribution houses and, and et cetera. Is that part of what causes that? I think the availability of that service is, is, um, is great, but I don't know how many uh, integrators take advantage of that. Um, I do think that one of the challenges they face as designers is that trans transition from sales to designer and the idea of overpromising on a job and not speaking the same language. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, a lot of anecdotes from integrators over the years saying, you know, their, their guys are great at sales, but sometimes getting the documentation of what they've actually told the client into the sales, you know, process, and then, you know, getting it to the final stage where it, it it's what the client wanted is, is a challenge. So it looks like some of what goes on in this training is working through those stages, coming up with, you know, better documentation and, um, you know, workflow to make sure that nothing gets, you know, dropped by the wayside. And then the client later on, you know, complains that that's not what they had agreed to. Um, so I, I, I think it's a lot of, a lot of those, you know, details that they're covering here in this training. Hey, Matt, I got to jump in on, on what you said, because you said that, um, a lot of manufacturers and distributors provide design services, but in reality, they don't. They provide a hardware list, and design services are way more comprehensive than a hardware list. And so there are a few that I know of that would really provide comprehensive design services in the way that uh, an integrator could actually utilize for the job or could even sell the client. Very good. Dave, when you, when you look at this, the the one topic that really kind of excited me was the, that, that handoff from sales to system design. You've been around this long enough. And again, you alluded to the, the fact that CD offers a ton of training on this, which they do. Why is it so hard so often for sales staff to get with system design and not oversell something that can actually be effectively done in design? Um, I think it kind of goes to human nature a little bit in that uh, a lot of times we think about it as a problem. We want to, you, you face a problem. You want to just jump in and start fixing something. And when it comes to design in general, it, you just, Oh, you know what? I, you know what? I want to really kill our home theater. Well, the first thing that starts popping into your head is okay. Well, 
you know what, I can get him this projector, I can get him the speaker. You know, as a salesperson, you're thinking, okay, well, you know, uh, as I want to get them a great product, but I also want to get something that's going to get me good margin. Uh, design process is actually kind of complicated and um, is a, at, at times a slow process. It's not very quick and we're trying to, you know, get things going. So I think in general, the mentality of design first instead of sales first is I mean, really just is that it's, it's a mentality. And I really, Josh, what you said, I loved so much, which is that you're getting a hardware list more than you're actually getting design services. I think to go back to, to Cedia for a second, uh, if you were to take uh, Rich Green and, and Peter Aylett's class on design thinking, you'll really see that um, it, you really shouldn't be starting with the sales process first. You should be figuring out what the customer needs and what they want. And at the end of the day, then the products are going to come from that. And uh, it's just kind of a hard mentality for a salesperson who, um, you know, their, their, their money, their lifeline comes from, from sales, not from design. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to the next story of the day. This comes to us from CE Pro, three tactics to fight the looming market correction. If you haven't been paying attention, pretty much everyone's saying that just around the corner, we will see a slowdown in the, uh, not only the global economy, but specifically the US and North American economy. And when you read through this article by Eric Thieves, really good. He talked, touches on a, a bunch of different things, but specifically he talk, touches on three business tactics, uh, increasing your sales and marketing efforts, differentiating yourself, and resizing your company to the corrected economy. So I kind of want to take this in a, in a different way that we normally would and go around the horn and literally have each one of you touch on these, one of these three things. So Jeremy, I want to start with you. When you look at increasing your sales and marketing efforts, that seems counterintuitive if there is the, the, the looming you know, economy slowdown that everyone's talking about right now. Why would you go and increase your sales, increase your marketing going into a slowdown? Well, I think that's just, you know, the idea was uh, anticipating that, that scenario. And, you know, if you start too late, then you're going to have a gap there in, you know, the pipeline, I suppose. So, um, it, you know, the, if the, the point was made here by Eric that things are starting to slow down a bit, you know, that there's a little bit of breathing room. It's not as uh, intense as it had been. Um, and to, instead of just like stopping and breathing and taking, you know, it for what it is, you know, ratchet it up and start developing your, your, uh, you know, relationships more. So reach out to more builders and designers and try to create more partnerships in the industry than you already have because the ones you have now may not be uh, as available when things slow down. Their business might start dry, drying up, so you're going to need more of them to reach out to. So do it while things are still good before you have to start laying people off and right-sizing your company uh, due to you know the pipeline drying up. So I think that's what it is. It's, it's a hard thing to sell when you are still relatively busy, but 
there's no time like, you know, when things are good, then to kind of ratchet it up, get, get all the ducks in a row. You may not be marketing at all. Now, you know, do it while you can afford it and, you know, get ahead of it. Very good. Dave, he touches on differentiating yourself. This is something that I've talked about for years. Heck, you and I have talked about multiple times about the need to differentiate yourself. This is more than just having a unique product or having some catchphrase that, that you push. Why is it so important to articulate why you're different to your clients? Well, the overwhelming majority of work that is done that you get is from word of mouth. We're still a, a word of mouth industry. And so um, at, at, the, at the end of the day, which if my wife hears this, she'll kill me. She says, I say that f- phrase all the time. But so at the end of the right? day, you are, your work speaks for who you are. And so you're not selling a product. You are selling an experience. And so when you are looking at growing sales, those kind of things, it's very important. But um, ultimately, most of your work is coming from the quality that you're doing and the, the services that you're providing on the back end. Um, so I, you know, ultimately I, th- I think that um, you have to differentiate from your competitors, but I really think, especially in a higher end market, that's done through the quality of work that you do. And, you know, you're making sure that you're networking, those kind of things. But, you know, if you're doing great work and your clients are pleased with you, they're going to bring you work as well. Very good. Josh, this one is arguably the hardest one to do. And I would argue it's also the one that you need to do the most is resizing your company to a corrected economy. How do you manage, you know, you've, you've personally held quite a few different roles within the industry. How do you manage taking care of your people and still having the flexibility the flexibility to scale up or scale down depending on what either the, the, the economy looks like or what your, your job pipeline looks like. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, yeah, I think if there was a silver bullet on this one, um, we'd have all the answers and wouldn't be even having this discussion. So I don't think there's an easy answer. Um, I think that, in general, it's the business owner's responsibility to understand his profitability on a per employee basis and the real structure of his company. In other words, when you look at how integrators grow, and I, I mentioned this on the other topic, you, you typically starts out with um, a, uh, a principal, right? Somebody who goes out on his own and starts his own company. Um, I'll call him a trunk slammer because that seems to be popular term that Eric uses, which I kind of take offense to, but we can bring that up later. Um, And so, you know, and then he needs a hand. So he brings on a technician. It's usually probably a contract uh, technician. It's a buddy of his or somebody he knows. Um, And then he gets to the point where he's doing the sales and he's got a couple technicians and he's doing the project management. And anyway, you grow your company. And I think it's important. um, Frank White talks a lot about this to understand how much revenue you need per employee to have a sustainable business model and to be profitable. And so I think if you really understand that, then you can watch closely your pipeline and you can watch 
um, your, your sales pipeline and your profitability and know when it's time to scale back because it's not necessarily just a matter of, well, I need to cut loose a technician or, mm-hmm. um, because typically you've got two technicians working as a team. You've got a project manager that oversees a couple teams. So I think it's, it's really about identifying and going in number one and understanding your, 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 uh, company makeup and your, your levels of profitability and when, it, when it's time to make that decision and knowing that ahead of time. And the second piece I think to this is, um, I like to think of this article in terms of, uh, you know, when this happened in 2008, and I've been in the industry since 2004, give or take. And so I remember seeing a lot of articles like this around 2008 and, and um, you know, a little bit before, a little bit after, during the downturn. I don't see a whole lot new here um, that, that we've, we're talking about here that's, that's any different than any other downturn. I, I would say, though, that we do have some tools now that we didn't necessarily have then. I think we've got some really fantastic buying groups and groups of really smart dealers, and we're so well, so much more connected socially um, across the industry in different different. Um, um, different, uh, you know, forums and et cetera, that you dealers have resources now to talk to other dealers that are, you know, a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. They've done certain things. They've gone through the 2008 recession. And so I think being as part of a buying group or a part of a group like that of peers, and he identifies this very early on in the article that says he, he has a lot of friends in different groups. I think getting an, in, into a group like that where you can rely on, on the wisdom of the crowd too to help you navigate those sort of choppy waters um, is, is important as well to this point. Um, I want to add to that just a little bit because um, I, I think every point you made spot on. Um, it's, it's hard to let somebody go, uh, you know, particularly as a small business because they're like family. You know their family. You know their kids. Um, but you're not doing your customers uh, and your other employees any good by not right-sizing your company. If you were to go back and look at, so you were talking about uh, 2008 to 2010, and you find a lot of the companies that went out of business, talk to their business owners, and they would say that one of the problems they had was they didn't let their staff go fast enough. Uh, and, um, And that's because it felt like you're laying off your brother. And uh, unfortunately, this is a business at the end of the day, and you have to um, make sure that you have the right cash flow to stay in business. And too many businesses went out of business um, because they couldn't just do the hard thing, which is to let people go. One of the biggest things that I find interesting about not only this topic, but the majority of topics around this type of situation, it always comes back to personnel and marketing. Is that something that our industry does not seem to teach well enough? I don't think it's about teaching. I think when it comes to marketing, um, it's just the last thing on the list. And, and most of these companies are small to mid-sized companies and the owner's got his hands in every department, which is important. I mean, it's, he's, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's a critical piece of, of every aspect of the company. And like Eric said, he gets busy and marketing's the last thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference, I think, between another difference between, you know, 2008 and now um, 
is that we have outsourced marketing opportunities and more easier marketing opportunities with, uh, with the web and web technologies and stuff like that. And so like, like Jeremy said earlier, if, if you've got the financial resources when um, the jobs are coming in uh, and, you, and you, you run out of time to work on marketing, then pay to outsource it or have, have somebody come alongside you and, and help do marketing. There's so much that can be done to generate those leads. That's the thing about keeping up with marketing. It's about creating a lead engine so that right now, maybe you can be picky about only taking 10% of those leads that you know are pre-qualified and, and super high quality. Um, but when the market goes down and those leads shrink, as long as your lead engine is big enough, then, and you can get more lax on the type of work that you do, then you can, that can sustain your business through a downturn. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's go to our likely last story of the day. This comes to us from Residential Tech Today and is kind of uh, a little fun. The smart home predictions that pop culture got right. Uh, this is from Anthony Elo. Read through this. It covers a couple of topics, specifically the Jetsons, uh, Smart House, and of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Total Recall. Dave, I want to start with you on this. We've seen these articles come and go for, for quite a while. When you look at this and, and you look at this list, it's a little tongue in cheek. It's a little, you know, just light fun. But how often does pop culture, does Hollywood get things right? Actually, I think uh, pop culture in Hollywood actually leads the way um, a lot of times. So it's, I mean, don't get me wrong to get things right, but it's also that they spur an idea and that idea then becomes something. So um, uh, the Amazon Echo from, from all I've read and heard, you know, kind of was spurred from Star Trek where Scotty's like computer and he's talking to the computer. So um, I, I, I think actually um, uh, pop culture is a really good thing. Now, do we have our, our flying cars yet? No. Um, but uh, I, I really, I think they do a great job. And the author, oh my God, the author so missed uh, what I think is probably the best example of um, what we have, which is Back to the Future 2. So in Back to the Future 2, they're showing flat panel TVs. Um, uh, and the, the big one for me is, uh, I, I think it's Jennifer Jason Lee. I don't think it's Elizabeth Shue at this point. And she's been tranquilized and she says, lights, uh, the cop says to her, lights on. And, um, and she says, lights on, like it's a question, not a command. So A, the lights turn on and B, the lights turn on, even though they weren't supposed to turn on. And it's just, it's just an exact example of what we have today. I think back to the future too, you go back and you look at it. And I think it's like, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. It's spot on it. Well, other than the flying cars, but, um, yeah. Wasn't that video conferencing too? Didn't he have, is that the one that they were yeah. doing back and forth for work or something? Like, uh, yeah, he's talk? doing like, uh, you know, basically FaceTiming. Now yeah. they did do it analog, not digital. So you saw him like, kind of like, you know, kind of go in and out and we don't, we don't really have, uh, you know, the, the noise issues, but yeah, it is really spot on. Dave, I uh, wish you'd be a little bit more excited on my show. I, <laughs> by the so way, mellow. 
Do you know that <laughs> Nike made a set of those shoes that yes. he has, and they're like $30,000, and people pay $30,000 for a pair of shoes. You pre-ordered a pair, didn't you? You oh, can tell us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I lead in fashion. Josh, <laughs> let me ask you this. Um, now that we got that out of the way, $30,000 shoes. Um, how often does Hollywood make it harder for us to actually meet expectations of what goes on in somebody's house? That's a good question. I would say that from a, in most cases when, when Hollywood is playing out these scenarios the way that they do, um, it doesn't really set expectations in terms of what people are going to have in their house, at least not anytime soon. I think, you know, all these movies that we're talking about and Minority Report was another one I was thinking about. Those are, these, these are so far out there um, that even when these, uh, even as, uh, when, when people are watching them, right, they're not thinking about how they're going to live a better life in their house. However, I do have one, my, my reference that was missed in here. This isn't necessarily a movie or, or maybe even it's a stretch that it's pop culture, but Jeremy will like this one. That's the uh, Carousel of Progress at Disney, right? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking and about Walt, that. That's like the last ride that Walt Disney actually had his hands on and designed. But in the, in the last scene, they're, uh, they've got voice control over their oven. And he accidentally turns it up to 975 and burns the turkey for, the, for, the, uh, for every um, Christmas. Um, that, that part was actually added a little later. but it's Yeah, but I think it was not in the good. 90s. Yeah, it was really early. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, even in the in the mid '90s, they were talking about voice control over your electronics and stuff like that. And I mean, we 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 have that today. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's very cool, Jeremy. I'll give you a quick last word on this. Do you enjoy watching Hollywood attempt to predict the future with technology? Yeah, you know, sometimes it seems like um, product placement these days, and you know, in the past, it, relatively recently you know you can kind of see through it if you know the industry players um i know that uh there's some really um they weren't even really smart home as much as like audio equipment you know when you have a really high style house or something and there's a couple of audio brands that you see placed you know because they have a very unique you know let's say in a little bit further past cd player that goes on the wall won't name brand names but um, you know, something that's really stylized. Um, those to me almost become more distracting than, you know, helpful in the story just because, you know, your industry affiliations. Um, but um, I, I think of things like the of Minority Report, like we just, you know, Josh was just mentioning, there's like a for, way forward thinking kind of look. That, that's really cool. Things that are more current, I don't think much about. Um, I, I, the reference that was made to uh, minority, I mean, not minority report, but total recall with a self-driving car. I mean, to me, that is amazing that we're getting as close as we are now with that technology. Um, I, I know we've got a long way to go, but I just um, had a friend who went to Vegas um, and had a lift. He called it a lift. And on the app, it said, would you like self-driving? He's like, well, hell yeah, <laughs> and and it shows up, and he's, he was greatly disappointed because there were not, it was not one, it was not only not self-driving, but there were two humans in the car, one with a laptop and one sitting in the steering area 
with their hands hovering over the steering wheel <laughs> and their foot hovering over the gas and brake pedal ready to take over. And what had happened was they were not allowed on the private property in self-driving mode. So they could only have it in self-driving on the boulevard or whatever, you know, public street. As soon as they got on a property, they had to take it back to manual. Um, and the guy with the computer, the laptop was, you know, fine tuning some of the, I guess, directions and things like that. But, uh, he said it, it, it was ex exhilarating for a moment, and then it was not. <laughs> so he, and then he got in the car, right? <laughs> yeah, he was just like, you know, they asked him, what, what do you feel about, what's, what's your experience been like? He's like, well, don't take this personally, but it would have been better if you weren't here. <laughs> <laughs> and on that fantastic note, we have to end there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Josh, if people want to connect with you, learn more about Portal IO and everything cool that you guys have going on, where can they do that? Yeah, so uh, you can reach me at josh at portal.io. And of course, our website is portal.io. Excellent. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. If people want to connect with you, learn more about THX, where can they do that? Uh, two ways. Uh, dpettigo at thx.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Dave Pettigo. Excellent. Very good. Mr. Glowacki, thank you for being here. If people want to connect with you, learn more about residential tech today, where can they do that? Visit restechtoday.com and subscribe to the magazine. And also um, look for me. Uh, there should be stories in there and get my email address and feel free to drop me a line. Very good. Again, thank you so much for joining us. For myself, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at Matt D. Scott on Twitter and many other social platforms. But more importantly, please stop by avnation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of our other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you support them as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. 